0: Strange Brew Podcast Season 1, Episode 84. We have a loaded episode for the end of July. Trade deadline is on the way on Tuesday. Brewers make a move in advance of the trade deadline, and they get a bat, and he comes loaded with music references. Carlos Santana will be joining the Brew crew in Atlanta as they come to an end of this critical 15-game stretch. Last three games in Atlanta starting tonight, they are 8-4 and four so far in this 15-game stretch. Deadline officially Tuesday, we'll break all of that down. We had a couple of spite stories this week. Aaron Rodgers and the Jets came to terms on a new contract where he is going to take, for the first time in his career, an actual pay cut. Not just pushing money down the line, a $35 million pay cut which you just know was a little jab at Goody in the Packer front office. We will discuss that, as well as Jimmy Leonard showing up with Brett Bielema in Illinois. We'll discuss that, too. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham, to Hardy, to first, He yes! The Browns yes. win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10-5! A smash up the middle, face the to center. Here comes Gomez, around third, a throw on the Brewers win. Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, it's play play interceptor interceptor. It. and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leans in, backed away It's stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has the foul, and a technical foul, throws it down. Swinging fly ball. we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, the Brewers make a move. I'm hoping it's not the only move that they're going to make, but it's a nice start. They get a bat. You know what was a nice start from last year? The nice start was they go and get a bat instead of not getting a bat when they need it and then trading their all-star closer. So far, I like the improvements they've made. Do you know right now... This team at 57-46 and is in the precise spot they were in 2022. I'm not sure how far in the lead they were in the Central. I want to say it was more than a game and a half. It's a game and a half right now, but it's two better in the loss column than the Reds, and they have the tiebreaker. So it's essentially three games over the Reds. The Cubs are red hot all of a sudden. They're five and a half back. They've won six in a row. They may be buyers at the deadline. But when you look at last year, exact same amount of games, they're in the same place. They have a chance, a rare chance in life, kids, to hit the redo button. Do the exact opposite. Do the George Costanza of what you did last year when you were 57 and 46 and in first place. And instead of getting a bat that you were desperate for, you got nothing and traded your all-star closer, arguably the third most important player on your team. Okay, so we didn't do that. We haven't traded Devin Williams, and we got a serviceable to decent bat. That also came with it just a ton of references, obviously the name Carlos Santana. I'm sure Carlos Santana, the baseball player, never tires of these references. I'm sure he never tires of the smooth references. It did allow us to play a little bit of this on the B93 Morning Show today. This song bangs. This song has ripped since it was released in 1999, took over the world in 1999, Every year since, every time I've heard this song, it's just a jam. Santana and Rob Thomas. Hit it. We can only play 45 seconds of it. I mean, bang. yeah. Give me your heart make real or else forget about it. God, he's so good on the guitar right, otherwise we got to pay for the rights. (laughs) We're not doing that. We're not taking it that far. We haven't been that profitable yet to pay for the Santana rights. That did introduce – I was 15 years old in 1999. That song did introduce a whole new generation of people to Carlos Santana and how great of a guitar player I would maybe put him. Would you put him on the Mount Rushmore of greatest guitar players ever? You have to, right? Is that a crazy take? Mount Rushmore, is he top two, not two? He's definitely top five. Would he be on the Mount Rushmore? But we didn't really know who Santana was. Some people probably did that were between the ages of 12 and 18 years old. But a lot of people were introduced to him through that song with Rob Thomas. And when I say that was everywhere in 99, you couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't go outside. You couldn't go to the grocery store. Every radio station was playing it. Anywhere there was music. It was imprinted in your brain. But I never got sick of it. I've probably heard it thousands of times, and I never got sick of it. It did lead to a trivia question on the B93 morning show this morning. It got me thinking about what are the best-selling singles of 1999. And it's a different world in 1999 where people are buying full albums. Remember that? When you had to buy a $20 CD or Best Buy, you'd pay $18 CD to get the three songs that you wanted on there. It's such a different world that was ushered in with Napster initially in 2000 that gave people the chance to purchase individual songs and then iTunes and all the streaming stuff. All of that stuff has changed the music game completely. Back then, though, when you were buying CDs or buying singles, it got me thinking where that would rank in the best-selling singles of 1999 – it is top five. It is number five as the best-selling single of 1999. Number four, you want to do a countdown here? Number four, Christina Aguilera, Genie in a Bottle. Number three, I'm not even going to play you a clip of this. It'll just be in your head for the rest of the time. Eiffel 65, Blue, Dabba D Dabba Die. Number two, Ricky Martin, Livin' La Vida Loca, and the number one selling single of 1999. A little drum roll here. We'll add that in later. This was it. And this also took over the planet. This was her first single. Yeah, I don't know how much I even want to play this, to be honest with you. I will say this music video on TRL when I was 15 years old was a must-see. That was appointment viewing after school. How was school, Jonathan? It was fine. Let me go watch TV. (laughs) Let me go watch TRL. That was the number one selling single of 1999. By the way, has anybody seen Britney? Every once in a while, for some reason, I'm not following her on Twitter or Instagram. I'm I'm honestly not. I'm not saying that it's like, oh, I'm trying to be cool when I am following her. I am not following her on Instagram or Twitter. But as you know, in the social media world, algorithms and they know what they think that you're going to like. Stuff will pop up all the time that you're not necessarily subscribed to. Have you seen any of the recent videos from Britney Spears? Remember three or four years ago, there was the whole Free Britney movement, and she was trying to get out of her conservatorship with her dad, which essentially, I'm not well-versed in conservatorships, but it essentially gives him, or whatever conservator is on it, the access of your life. They control your money, they control a lot of your life. There was the whole free Britney movement. There were a ton of different specials that were on Dateline in 2020 and Hulu and Netflix did their own thing and Hulu did their own thing. And everybody seemed to get behind the, yeah, she should no longer be under the control of her dad. He's been a ruthless dictator of her life. She needs to be allowed to live her own life. She's almost 40 years old or she is 40 years old. Everybody seemed to have that wave of momentum. She got free. (laughs) We did free Britney. But every video I've seen since then has gotten progressively more unhinged and not in a good way. Sometimes you can be unhinged or a loose cannon in a good way. This is not in a good way. Every video I see now, I think, "Mm, maybe that conservatorship wasn't a bad thing. That might have been a good thing. And I feel like her dad somewhere probably is saying, see, see, this is what I was trying to protect people from. That was the number one selling single of 99. It's actually, I've got the whole top 100 here. You want to go through them all? Some of the songs, TLC, No Scrubs was in the top 20. What else was in the top 20? Macy Gray, I Try, Madonna, Beautiful Stranger. I mean, some of the things in that year. Boz Luhrmann, Everybody's Free to Wear Sunscreen. Will Smith, Wild Wild West, (laughs) the adjoining song to one of the worst remakes of all time. Backstreet Boys, I want it that way. Oh, boy, if you lived it, it was a time to be alive, 1999. Carlos Santana and Rob Thomas Smooth. And then it led to a lot of other Santana references, too. That was the one people went to. This is a good get, though. I know there's going to be some debate, and there are going to be some Brewers fans that will roll their eyes at some of the raw offensive numbers for Carlos Santana. First of all, he's not young. If you don't know who he is, he's 37 years old. He's not a young guy. He's a switch hitter. Spent most of his career in Cleveland, started in 2010. He had some massive years in Cleveland. He was a key part of the middle of their order for almost a decade. And he had some really big years. His wars for a while were all three and a half, four plus. So he was a player that was well above replacement level. He was in 2014 and 2019. He finished in the top 15 in AL MVP voting. That's how good he was. In 2014, he had 27 bombs and 85 driven in. In 2019, he was not only top 15 MVP, he was an all-star that year, and he was the Silver Slugger winner in the American League for the best hitter at first base, 34 home runs and 93 driven in, drew over 100 walks that year as well. He had an OPS of 9-11. That's not that long ago, 2019. However, that was a mid-30s season. Any sport you follow at this point, that – that's kind of the tail end of your prime. He's 37 years old now. He went to Kansas City for a year and a half. He was traded at the deadline last year from Kansas City to Seattle, where he played for that team in the playoffs. Hit 15 bombs for them the second half of the year. Then he signed a one-year, $8 million deal with the Pirates. He's been good in Pittsburgh. Again, Brewer fans, some, are going to roll their eyes at him batting 235 and say, whoa, that's not that much better. But it is. It really is. He has 12 home runs and 53 driven in. I was in a text chain with a couple of my buddies yesterday, and I was doing just a little research on where he would fit into the current Brewers stats if you just moved his Pirate stats over to the Brewers stat page. He would be third best OPS on the team. He would be third in home runs and second in runs driven in behind Christian Yelich with 53 driven in. It's not a bad year. His OPS is 733. His WAR WRC Plus is basically 89. He's either been slightly above or slightly below average for the entirety of the year based on those metrics, and a lot of those are the go-to metrics now. That may be true, but the Brewers have been so bad offensively, the second-worst offense in the National League, and they have been particularly bad at first base and DH. For as bad as they've been overall as an offense, they've been especially bad at those spots. The total OPS the Brewers have generated from a first baseman this year, and this is for everybody anybody that's played at first base Owen Miller, Rowdy Tillette, whoever's all been over there Victor Caratini they have gotten a grand total of a 612 OPS from first base, which is dreadful. So his 733 OPS is not going to blow your doors off, but it's a hundred plus points better than 612. It's a hell of a lot better than it was. If he can even hit to that rate, I think we'll see a spike too. I think we're going to see a little bit of a jump from a veteran player who's seen success. Who's been in the playoffs who, like we just said has finished in the top 15 in MVP voting. He's won silver sluggers. He's been an all-star. That Pirates team, for as good as they were in the first month and a half, they eventually became the Pirates, which we all thought they would. Eventually, they were going to Pirate, and they have Pirated. They are nowhere near in contention anymore. I think we will see a bit of a boost from him just joining a team that has a pulse, a first-place team, a team that can get back to the playoffs. That may light a fire under him, at least in the short term, and we could see a springboard there right when he joins the team. But even if he just does what he's been doing and he plays first base every day, That's way more than they've been getting from first base so far this year. Yes, those numbers he has may be average or a little above average. When you compare them to what we've gotten, they're way above what we've gotten. On top of that, Carlos Santana is by any measure an elite first base defender, elite at first base defense, which means he's going to be the guy at first base. He is going to be the guy over there, you would guess, 80% of the time as long as he's healthy. Because he's a switch hitter, there's no reason to get him out of the lineup. And even if he isn't hitting for whatever, he's in a slump for some reason at the plate. He gives you such good defense. He makes all of the routine plays and many of the spectacular plays. I saw somebody had a video up of just his Pirates season. Just the plus plays he's made in Pittsburgh this season. Not over his whole career, just in Pittsburgh this year. It was about eight minutes long. That's how many great plays he has made. That makes him even more valuable. His war right now is 1.5. Again, Rowdy Tellez has a negative war. Owen Miller at first base has a negative war. This is an improvement. We've talked before the deadline ad nauseum on the podcast and on the air that this team, in my opinion, I mean, you'd love to get three bats. This team needs two bats. I've always stood by two bats. You need one decent bat and one impact bat. This I would file under decent bat when you also combine how good he is defensively. This is a decent get. I'm hoping there's still a big move to be made. If this is the only move they make, I guess it's the only move they make. At least they did something as compared to last year. This, though, I would file under that decent player, that decent bat that they were looking for. It sounds like he's going to join the team on Saturday. He may be with the team in Atlanta tonight. My guess is he's in the lineup starting on Saturday. I did have a texter on the B93 morning show that said, what does this mean for Rowdy? Rowdy might be the only guy who's not pumped about this. They did talk to some Brewer players as they stopped off in Atlanta, and the team seemed excited. Remember how bad the locker room was when they traded Hater last year? They're probably just excited to see a reverse of what they were doing keeping their guys, and adding players. Sounds like the team is excited to add a player of Carlos Santana's caliber. Rowdy's probably the one guy who is not jacked up. He's probably still out two-ish weeks, it sounds like, with that staples in the it's 17 stitches in his finger. How big is his mitt? How big is Rowdy Telez's finger? How big is his hand? 17 feels like a lot of stitches for a ripped nail, for a nail that he ripped out. It sounds like it's now a pain management thing. He's probably going to be on the IL for another week, and then it's a pain management thing. Texter asked me on the morning show when we were talking about this trade, what does that mean for Rowdy, dot, 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 DH, question mark? Yeah, those at-bats are there. For as bad as first base has been, DH has been even worse. There will be at-bats for Rowdy. If he can hit, if he can get back to where he was in April when he was pretty good, he has been miserable since. Did not have a good May and then has had an abysmal June and he only played a handful of games in July. Those weren't good either. For 70% of the year or 70% of the games that he's played in, he has not been good. Month of April was good. If he can get back to that, there are at-bats to be had at DH because they've gotten nothing, even less than they've gotten at first base. My guess is that is where he'll slot in when he comes back. And Rowdy, I would say he surprised me defensively. He's surprisingly nimble, all nimble-bimble. He's pretty nimble at first base. I don't know when they got him that we thought he was going to be a guy you could throw out there every day defensively. We thought at first he was going to be a liability. He's really gotten fairly decent at defense at first base. But Carlos Santana, as we just said, is several notches ahead of him that means if Rowdy's gonna factor into the everyday lineup, he's gonna have to get it going, A. And B, it's probably gonna have to be in the that DH spot. Did you see by the way too on was it Wednesday or Thursday, we had another phantom injury. Uh, we talked about this when Rowdy went on the IL with a forearm injury before the actual injury he then suffered shagging fly balls. Every team does this. It just feels like the Brewers do it more. And maybe that's just a byproduct of how bad the offense has been. So they end up having a lot of guys that are in deep slumps that you want to give a break to, a mental break to, but you don't want to necessarily send them down. Or in Jesse Winker's case and Rowdy's case, they're out of options, so you can't send them down. It seems like the Brewers do this with players who are in bad slumps. They'll just throw them on the I.L. for 10 days with something. Fatigue, cramps, leg cramping, a quad injury, something like that. We were joking about that when they put Rowdy on the IL with forearm soreness, and then on Thursday, I think it was Jesse Winker went on the IL with back spasms. Hey Jesse, your back looks like it's acting up a little bit. No, I feel fine. I feel great. Actually, I've never felt better. I feel this is as good as I felt all year. No, I just it looks like it's bad. It looks like you maybe a little spasmy. You know what? We'll just put you on the IL. We'll just put you over there for a while. And put you on the injured list until we figure out what we can acquire and what we may have coming out of the trade deadline because that's how long he's going to be there. I did read some articles that thought he was going to get DFA'd on Tuesday because that would keep him in DFA limbo until you would get past the deadline. This seems to be an alternative move that they've gone to where they're just going to put him on the IL and see what happens until the deadline on Tuesday. Rowdy will have at-bats, though, at DH, whenever it is that he gets back. Maybe next week. That's likely where he's going to slot in. But as we said, I just don't see for how good defensively Santana is and if he can keep the bat going where it's been or be even better, it's going to be really hard to pry him out of the lineup or put somebody over at first base. Rowdy's going to have to get his hacks in at that DH spot. That leads to the deadline coming up on Tuesday. You're still hoping, like we said, for that impact bat. They can get anyone. Shohei Otani is off the market. The Angels became buyers. What are they, four games out of the wild card. I guess it's not insane. Just given what the Angels have been doing the past decade and a half, it seems crazy that they'd be buyers and not sellers at the deadline. The thought was that based on where they were, just hovering around 500 and falling back in the wildcard race, that Shohei Otani would be on the market. He is not going to be on the market. They pick up two pitchers from the White Sox, Giolito and Reyes, They had to give up a couple of top prospects to get him. They're going to try and track down that wild card. My guess is, then, that they're hoping that if they spend the money or the prospects to make a playoff chase and they make the playoffs, then maybe they're the logical place where Shohei would stay. Did you see Shohei's day, yet? by the way, yesterday in Detroit in a doubleheader? I mean, what are we doing? This guy... We've never seen anything like it. I know people like to compare it to Babe Ruth because Babe Ruth was a historically great home run hitter and he was a very good pitcher before he became a home run hitter. He was a fantastic pitcher for the Red Sox before they traded him to the Yankees and he became one of the great sluggers of all time, the Sultan of SWAT. He gets compared to Babe a lot. We never saw this with Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth, first of all, Babe Ruth, (laughs) if he had to – Sit in the box in today's game, and I know it's always hard to compare eras. If Babe Ruth were sitting in a batter's box today and saw a 97 mile an hour two seam fastball, he would poop his pants. There's just he wouldn't even be able to do anything in Major League Baseball present day. It's hard to compare it for that reason, but also if you are going to compare the two eras, Shohei's doing it at the same time. <laughs> People think about Babe Ruth because he is one of the other few players in the history of the game who both pitched successfully and hit very successfully. But they were two different parts of his career. He was a pitcher with the Red Sox for four or five years before they traded him to the Yankees, Curse of the Bambino, and he then became a hitter. I don't know that he pitched a ton in New York at all. They discovered, like, hey, this guy can hit the ball pretty far. Let's just have him do that. He was never doing it at the same time. Maybe once or twice in his career he had that happen, where he was pitching one day and then hitting the next. It's not like he's like Shohei is right now, where Shohei is taking the ball every five days as a pitcher. His numbers, pitching-wise, are a bit down this year. He was top five Cy Young voting last year and number two in MVP voting last year and should win the MVP in the AL this year. He's doing it at the same time, and in yesterday's case, in the same day. Game one of the doubleheader, he throws a complete game shutout. Game two of the doubleheader, he hits two home runs, both in Angels wins. You've got to do it for longer before he can be considered the greatest player of all time. In a vacuum, he is. If we're just looking at what a player has done in a two-year window or a three-year window... If you're only comparing everyone's best two- or three-year window, what he's doing, both pitching and hitting, he is the greatest of all time in that window. He's got to do it for longer. He's got to do it over the course of a 10-plus-year career probably to be considered the greatest of all time. That's the path that he is on, though. We have never seen anything like what this guy is doing. And against modern pitching and modern hitting and modern training and modern technology – That when you go back to the last time players were doing this, they just didn't have. It is insane what Shohei is doing out there right now. It would be like, it's so hard to compare even across sport. Because pitching and hitting are two totally different things. Although I used to watch games back in the day with my dad. And he would always get frustrated when pitchers were hitting back when that was a thing. And it's only been gone for a few years now. Or was it just this year? No, a few years. He would always get frustrated because the pitchers were such bad hitters. We'd be watching a game, and he'd see a Brewer pitcher strike out on three pitches, and he'd always say, well, you'd think the pitcher would be a better hitter given that he knows what goes into pitching. I'm like, Yeah, I guess. That's not a horrible argument. It's just not quite how it works. They're two totally different things. What Shoei is doing would be like if Aaron Rodgers in 2011, where would we say he was at the peak of Aaron Rodgers' powers? We'll talk more about him in a little bit, but 2011 through 2014, If at the peak of Aaron Rodgers' quarterback powers, where it felt like he was Jason Bourne, he was seeing things that nobody else was seeing. His mind was so quick and so sharp. He was so accurate. And then simultaneously, he'd also be the best middle linebacker in the NFL or the best safety. That's what Shohei is doing. We'll never see another player like him. I'm convinced. There will be more that will try now because of what he's been able to do. It would shock me if we ever see a player like last year where he finished second in MVP voting and fifth in Cy Young voting. Insane. They thought Otani would be on the market. He is not going to be on the market given that move. There are other bats out there, though, and honestly, the Brewers could get any of them. One thing that's really frustrated me about the last week or so on Brewer Twitter, talking about potential trade targets, talking about... Shohei when we thought Shohei was going to be on the market, or a guy like Nolan Arenado, or a guy like Paul Goldschmidt. And they may both be out there the way the Cardinals are going. They are totally sinking now. Still not going to write them off. (laughs) It does look like they are sinking, though, fast. They're 12 games back. Those guys might be out there. The popular sentiment you see on baseball Twitter and Brewer Twitter when it comes to the Brewers getting a guy like that, an Otani, a Goldschmidt, Arenado, everyone always says, ah, no, the Brewers will never get him. Let's talk about more realistic targets. Well, wait a minute. Why is that not a realistic target? We're not talking about signing somebody. Shohei's going to be a free agent at the end of this year. If we were talking about the Brewers trying to acquire Shohei Otani by signing him to a deal, then yes, that's a non-starter. They're never going to be able to pay a guy whatever Otani's going to get. He's probably going to get $700 million over a 10-year deal or a 15-year deal. Yes, if we're talking about signing Goldschmidt or Aronata or Otani or, or players like that as free agents, they're never coming to Milwaukee. Milwaukee will never be competitive. We're talking about trades. The Brewers have one of the highest regarded farm systems in Major League Baseball. Because of that, if they're willing to spend prospects, anybody's in play for them. Anybody. If Otani were available and the Angels were 10 games under 500 if Matt Arnold called the Angels right now and offered up two top 10 prospects that the Brewers have or three top 15 prospects... The Brewers' system is so well-regarded right now, it would be hard for the Angels GM to hang up and not take that deal. Three top 15 prospects from a good system. You see what I mean? They can get anybody in the rental market. The Brewers are at a -a rent-a-car. You can take the reservations. Anybody can just take them. (laughs) They are at a rental car place with a million dollars in their pocket. They can get any rental car they want. They can't go to a dealership. They can't go to the Rolls-Royce dealership and get anything they want there. At the Rent-A-Car, at the Hertz, they can get anything they want for three months. They have that kind of money. They're on vacation. They could get the Corvette if they wanted to. They could get the Ferrari if they wanted to. Or they could get a Honda Civic or a Toyota Corolla or whatever. I don't even know. A Ford Explorer. They can get anything. They have the prospect load to get any bat out there. It's just so frustrating to me when you hear the big names thrown around. And then people, Brewers fans, a lot of them just write off, I oh, will never get Paul Goldschmidt. Well, if he's out there, why not? And also you've got to consider, yes, it's going to cost you a lot of prospects to get a player like Goldschmidt or Arenado or a player of that caliber. It's probably going to cost you two top 10 picks. It probably won't cost you as much as you think it will. It'll probably cost you two top 10 prospects or a couple of top 15 prospects. The only thing they had to give up for Carlos Santana was a fringe top 30 prospect. That's a gamble you make every time for a guy like Santana. They can get anyone with that prospect list, and that may deplete you for a little bit, and you may see some names go. But two things to always remember there. Number one, prospects, we never know how they work out. It's a crapshoot. When you think back to the CC trade in 2008, when they gave the Indians four players for CC Sabathia, and the headline player going back to Cleveland was Matt Laporta. And I remember Brewers Fancy was the number one prospect in the Brewer system. Everybody said, oh, my God, they gave up Matt Laporta? How are we ever going to live without Matt Laporta? Matt Laporta did nothing in Major League Baseball. In fact, the only player in that trade of the four they sent to Cleveland that did anything was the player to be named later that they added at the end of the year, and that was Michael Brantley. And Brantley's still playing, I think, in Houston. He's a 13-year career, multi-time all-star. He was the only one that worked out. I understand that small market teams have to be more frugal with their prospects because they're not going to sign the big free agents. You have to protect your top, top prospects because you need to develop from the farm system. That said, of the top 20 Brewer prospects right now, how many are actually going to work out if you trade them? If you trade four, are two going to work out? Are you not going to lose any sleep over two? That's a part of it. The other part of the conversation to me about giving up top prospects for a big bat is that you're going to replenish the farm system in the offseason. Yes, you may give up three guys to get a name like Arenado or Goldschmidt if they can somehow manufacture that deal. And on the surface, that's going to hurt. But don't forget we are headed into an offseason where they're going to have to trade Corbin Burns. They're not going to sign him, and I don't think they're going to let him get all the way to the deadline next year when his value is not going to be as high. My guess is we see Burns traded in the offseason, is traded in the offseason, and you might see Woodruff. I'm holding out hope they're going to sign Woodruff, but you may also trade him. So yeah, if you get a big name, it's going to cost you two or three big names in your farm system. You're going to get Four to five guys back this offseason when you have to unload some of these players that you're not going to be able to sign to long-term extensions. On paper, in the heart of it, it's going to seem like, man, that's a lot to give up to get this kind of bat. We are six months away from getting four or five prospects back for some of our other guys that you can reload then in AA and AAA. I hope that they do something big and put a big bat in the middle of that order. I don't know how big of a bat is out there, if Goldschmidt's available, if Arenado's available, what the other big bats would be. This is the time to do it, though. The bullpen is elite. The starting rotation, you've kind of held together with a lot of injuries. You're going to lose some of these guys, though, this offseason in all likelihood. Now is the time to go for it. They've proven now in this 15-game stretch against good teams. They can go toe-to-toe with anybody, and hopefully they'll prove it again in Atlanta this weekend. It is time. I feel like Kevin Green in Super Bowl 45. It is time to give up a couple of prospects. I know that Jackson Churio is a non-starter. And Jacob Mizorowski is a non-starter, and I get that. We're talking about Jackson Trio, not just the top prospect of the Brewers. Maybe the top or top three prospects in all of baseball. They're not going to give up. There are some guys that they're just not going to give up. They still have plenty of options in the minor league system of guys they could use as currency to go and get a big middle-of-the-order bat. Santana was a good start. I hope they make one more move, and I hope it's a little bit bigger than the Carlos Santana deal. Trade deadline is Tuesday. Great week for the Brewers. They win their last series of the year against the, the Reds. They go 10-3 and against the second-place Reds. Got the Yelly walk-off winner on Monday. On Tuesday, got down 4 nothing. Yelly hit a three-run bomb late in that one. They had two guys on with two outs then to try to tie it or win it. Couldn't get it done on Tuesday. Lost that one 4-3. to And then on Wednesday, 3 nothing win. Freddie was as good as we've seen him. We talked on Monday about him having to be better. He was way better on Wednesday. 13 strikeouts matched to career high. I'm pretty sure... That goes back to his debut on Mother's Day in 2018 where he had 13 strikeouts. He was unhittable, basically, a couple of hits given up, and they did just enough. All the games were close. Brewers took two out of three. The offense did just enough. They got a two-run bomb from Tyrone Taylor, which feels like found money the way that he's hitting. He's hitting 150 with an OPS under 400 so far this year. He goes yard. That's all they needed. Andre Monasterio, is he good? He's gonna be in the lineup because they're so desperate for anything. He had two doubles on Wednesday. He's hitting 296 first year in Major League Baseball. Maybe he found something there. He got that tack on run late. Devin Williams got the save. They are now eight and four, like we said, 12 games into this 15-game stretch, and that wraps up this weekend. Right back at it with the best team in baseball at their place. Adrian Hauser on the hill tonight, 620. Saturday, Julio Tehran, 620, and Colin Ragos on Sunday. Not your horses necessarily, but Hopefully they can get it done. Colin Ray at 1235 on Sunday. And then they hit the road or stay on the road in Washington. More winnable games are coming. Look, it's baseball. They could sweep the Braves and then get swept by the Nationals. That's just the nature of the game. But they're going to start playing a lot of 500 or sub-500 teams after this weekend in Atlanta. It starts in Washington on Monday. Then you've got a seven-game homestand against Pittsburgh, who are fading and are likely to sell off even more pieces after the deadline. You've got them for four. And Colorado, who will also be selling a lot of their pieces as they are in last place. You've got them at home for three. That's a big seven games where you could maybe go five and two, six and one and really set the stage for the stretch run the final month and a half of the year. But Carlos Santana, that was exciting. All right, we got to do a couple of quick spite football stories. We had first Aaron Rodgers. This was a blog we had on Thursday. He restructured his deal with the Jets, and he's taking a pay cut. He's taking a $35 million pay cut. At least that's what it looks like. Some people are still skeptical of that. He did do in Green Bay. The reason it's funny to me is... Obviously, him and Goody just hate each other. Those two tried to have a working relationship for the last couple of years. Clearly, neither of them like each other a whole lot, and it was the drafting of Jordan Love and moving up to get Love that really started that domino. I don't know that Rodgers loved him before that anyway. That was the schism, though, that never was repaired. And for years and years and years, Packer fans always asked, well, why doesn't Aaron Rodgers do what Tom Brady is doing? Tom Brady is taking pay cuts left and right so they can supplement that roster and look at all the Super Bowls they've won. Maybe if Aaron Rodgers would do that, maybe they'd have a little more talent and he'd have another ring or another Super Bowl appearance. Packers fans have been talking about that for a long time. For the record, I never thought that was Aaron Rodgers' responsibility. Maybe some fans out there did. I just never thought it was his job to take a pay cut. Would it have been nice if he did that and it freed up some capital to go sign a big-name defensive free agent or supplement it with a wide receiver or bring, make sure Devontae stays in Green Bay? Would that have been nice? Sure. But I never thought that that his responsibility was to take a pay cut in order to cover up what is essentially bad drafting. And that's what it is. When you talk about taking a pay cut to spend more money elsewhere, you're spending more money because you've had bad drafts back-to-back-to-back. The last few Ted Thompson drafts are bad. Goody's first draft and second draft, not that great. That's what he would have been doing. You would have been asking him to take a pay cut for a GM that he didn't like and then a GM that goes and drafts his successor in the first round instead of getting a weapon for him in 2020. I never thought that was his job to cover up for some of the roster deficiencies by taking a pay cut. He did, to his credit. He did do a few restructures during his time in Green Bay where he pushed money to the future, which did free up short-term capital, not long-term. He did do that a few times, but never did take the pay cut. He was always, it felt like, signing deals that made him the highest-paid player in the NFL every two or three years. I personally have no problem with that. I know a lot of Packer fans did and didn't think he was a team player because he wasn't willing to do that. The funny thing is, he goes to New York. I mean, nobody does spite like Aaron Charles Rogers. For spite? The man does it. First bite? He just, he has got that chip on his shoulder, that spite chip on his shoulder. So for all those years of Packer fans asking him to do that, and maybe the hierarchy or the front office in Green Bay had asked him at some point to do that as well, and he just didn't do it. And then his first year in New York, he takes a $35 million pay cut. I mean, <laughs> you just got to gotta tip your cap. Can I ask why? First bite? Nobody's better than you, babe. Nobody's better than you. Hard Knocks is filming now. We've seen some teaser videos on Twitter. It looks like their first episode is not far off. I thought it was going to be on August 13th. It's going to be on August 8th, I believe, a Tuesday. That'll be episode one of Hard Knocks with the Jets. The other spite story, I don't know if it's as spiteful. Jimmy Leonard is in Illinois. He is signing on with Brett Bielema. He was an assistant for Brett for a long time. Brett maybe was the guy that hired him as an assistant coach. And did he coach him? It feels like that probably didn't cross over. I think Leonard was still a Barry guy. But Leonard, or Bielema was the guy that brought Leonard into the fold and made him the defensive coordinator. I'm almost certain. And after things ended the way they did for Jim in Wisconsin, which was a shocker, I think, to him and to fans too. When he got the interim tag, I blogged about this on Thursday as well. When he got the interim tag, I just thought he was the logical guy. It seemed like he was the head coach and waiting for a few years given what happened at the beginning of last year and the falling out with Chris and firing him midseason and making Leonard the interim coach when it seemed like he was going to be the next guy up anyway, it felt logical that Jim Leonard was going to be the head coach. I believe from everything I've heard about him and his camp, they also thought that. When the Badgers pivoted to Luke Fickle, it was a shocker. It was a shocker to Badger fans. It was probably a shock to him and his family and friends that he's not going to be the guy, the hometown guy, the rising defensive coordinator who by all measure is going to be a successful head coach somewhere. And he's out in the hometown team, the big team in the state, and he didn't get the job. It was a shocker. It was. It was a stutter. Everything that's happened since only reinforces to me and to most Badger fans that they made the right move. I don't think with Jim Leonard as the head coach, you're seeing all the four- and five-star recruits that are signing on for future years or the guys like Mordecai that are transferring to Wisconsin. It has been such a fun offseason. There's not a Badger fan I know in my life that is not pumped up for this team, for this fickle era to begin. It's been fun in theory. You want to see it in practice. You want to see it on the field. It's just had so much energy behind it. Everybody cannot wait for Badger's season to begin. But Jim Leonard had to be a little chapped, right? I mean, with all those things going for him and it being his hometown team and the place he wanted to be and to raise a family, it had to chap him a little bit. How could it not? And then for him to end up with Brett Bielema, who has become one of the more, I don't know, is hated too strong of a word? One of the more hated personalities, former sports personalities in the state. To go and join him at a rival school at Illinois, and then after what happened with the Illinois matchup last year, yeah, there's a little <laughs> there's a little spite in there. It was tough to see Leonard. Of course, they Photoshopped him into all the Illini gear, and they posted that on their page. It was a bitter pill a bit to see Jim Leonard in the Illini orange and navy blue. That's where he ends up, though. That was a jarring photo on Twitter over this past weekend. But we wish him nothing but success, right? As long as it doesn't come at the expense of the Badgers. As long as the Badgers <laughs> beat Illinois, I'm fine with it. We want him to succeed. He eventually is going to take over a program somewhere in the next few years, and he's going to see a lot of success, I would think. We wish him nothing but the best. And the feeling initially when they went to Fickle was that maybe Leonard got a bit of a raw deal there. And it's not shocking he ends up in the under the wing of one Brett Bielema at Illinois. That was this week, too. All right, we'll get back after it on Monday. We will be knocking on the door of the trade deadline on Monday. We'll recap that Brewers Braves series. We'll talk trade deadline and any other Packer news that comes out with more practices happening over the weekend. Camp fully underway. We'll chat with you then. Have a happy, safe weekend.